Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we will be speaking with the authors of the article, Healthcare Center-Based Cell Therapy Laboratories Supporting Off-Site Manufactured Cell Therapies, The Experiences of a Single Academic Cell Therapy Lab. Welcome, Drs. Ann Din and David Stronzek. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Din, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much. My name is Ann Din. I'm a clinical pathologist and a medical officer in the National Institutes of Health, Department of Transfusion Medicine, and Center for Cellular Engineering, or CCE. Thank you. And Dr. Stronsnick, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. I'm Dave Stronsnick. I'm a physician in uh, the Center for Cellular Engineering, and I direct the uh, Department of Cellular Engineering at the NIH Clinical Center. Thank you. Thank you. So first, could you just summarize your study for our listeners? Absolutely. To provide some background, healthcare center-based cell therapy labs evolved from primarily processing hematopoietic progenitor cells for transplantation to manufacturing advanced cell therapies such as chimeric antigen receptor or CAR T cells. And it was mostly academic medical centers that were producing these therapies for on-site treatment as a part of clinical trials. But over the past decade, there's been a surge in the interest and in development of cell therapies. And therapies manufactured at one center are often shipped to others as part of single or multi-center clinical trials. Commercial groups are also very active in this space. And the number of cell and gene therapies approved by the FDA has increased. And so did the demand for healthcare center-based cell therapy labs to support off-site manufactured cell therapies. Healthcare centers would collect and ship out cellular starting material to external manufacturing facilities. And once the final product is manufactured, it's sent back to the healthcare center to receive, store, and distribute for patient treatment. Sometimes the healthcare center may only be involved with receiving a final product. So our center has been supporting these off-site manufactured cell therapies since 2012, and our publication covers our 11-year experience. We supported 15 early-phase clinical trials for cancer immunotherapies and gene therapies sponsored by academic or commercial entities, including both single and multi-center trials. Indications included hematologic disorders and malignancies, as well as solid tumors. At our center, our apheresis center collects the starting material and CCE ships it off-site for manufacturing. We also receive, store, thaw, and distribute both autologous and allogeneic final manufactured products. And what we found was that these protocols had distinct procedures and specifications for processes that were otherwise similar for handling the product. These differences permeated the entire product handling process, including starting material shipping conditions, laboratory analyses, final product thaw conditions and procedures, number of treatments, and documentation. During this 11-year timeframe, we had about one new protocol a year, and only two protocols ended. So while new protocols were added each year, not very many were ending. The number of products we handled each year also increased, but despite this increase, for any given protocol, we were handling these products infrequently, maybe three times a year. And for some protocols, there were years when we didn't handle any of their products. 
So when you combine protocol variability, infrequent handling, and a continual increase in protocols, there are going to be concerns about maintaining staff competency, process sustainability, product quality, and patient safety. So as a director of a HPC lab, I feel your pain. Um, I'm wondering what prompted you to do this study. Is it just the constant, the, the increasing number of these studies? What, what prompted you to go back and look at your experience? That's a great question. So at face value, the logistics for handling off-site manufactured products seems simple. But with so many differences between various protocols, centers may end up needing to dedicate substantial resources um, to supporting these protocols, including developing new systems, allocating sufficient support staff, and maintaining staff competency. A couple of centers have reported their experiences and challenges with handling commercial off-site manufacturer products, and we wanted to provide our experience with early phase clinical trial products, as well as a more detailed characterization of the variability that's seen with these processes and products, really in hopes of helping other centers anticipate what this support really entails. We also hope that with our experience, um, we could help optimize any initiatives and collaborations to help streamline and standardize these processes. Ultimately, if we can reduce the burden on centers supporting these therapies, we may also be able to increase that access to these therapies. Yeah, Yara, maybe I can add that, um, you know, part of the reason to uh, summarize the data and publish it is to start a dialogue. Uh, mm -hmm. We think we think there's quite a few other academic centers involved in this activity, yet it's not organized well. Uh, you know, and 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 we need we need some kind of infrastructure to set standards to have more uniform practices to make this process easier for everybody. So so yeah. summarizing the data and and then getting it out there and, and talking about it, I think will help advance the field in the long. Absolutely. I was reading this and just wanted to scream amen the whole time I was reading your paper about the frustrations and the difficulties of maintaining competency of 15 different protocols that never seem to end. So I really applaud you for putting this out here and hoping, helping to try to get that dialogue going. So since you did mention you have 15 protocols and sometimes you don't even see a product for an entire year, what strategies do you use to help your staff maintain their competency on these very rarely done products? Thank you, Yara. So our center has a few strategies for supporting these therapies. So having subject matter expertise is really helpful. A CCE has a service coordination team with experience in navigating and onboarding these different protocols, and they serve as the liaison between study teams, external sponsors, and other CCE staff. They also schedule and communicate with various external parties about all the product handling related events, such as the starting material receipt, shipping, final product receipt, and distribution. And our technologists are also subject matter experts in handling these products. We spend a lot of time preparing for new protocols, and mm -hmm. it makes 
significant depending on how complex the protocol is or the level of experience of sponsors and study teams. We review the protocol materials that we're given, and we do ask sponsors to complete a detailed logistics questionnaire about the support we'll be providing. There are several email communications and meetings to clarify the logistics or to receive training before getting started. And really, before we agree to work with clinical products or go live, we participate in engineering or mock runs of the process to identify potential issues. And these runs are most effective when they most closely mirror how we'll be working with the clinical products. And then once the protocols are active, if there is a significant amount of time that has elapsed between us having handled a product and not having handled a product, we do request retraining from the sponsor. Um, for each of these protocols, our center also prepares a document that integrates both our center-specific procedures as well as the sponsor-provided procedures. And we usually try advocating for using our own procedures to reduce the variability in that mm -hmm to help our staff, um, but it does depend on the flexibility that's granted by a sponsor's investigational new drug application. Um, one thing that we did notice when we first began supporting these protocols is that they tended to be single center protocols and sponsors were more receptive to us using our own center specific procedures because we were the only center. Uh, right. Over time, as multi-center protocols increased, these sponsors sought to standardize processes across their sites, and their standardization comes at the expense of participating centers, which end up being forced to spend time and resources to adapt. And we're fortunate with the expertise and the resources that we have, but we recognize that not all centers will have the means to meet such demands. And so we ultimately do think that some degree of standardization of the logistical processes across multiple protocols or sponsors where possible may end up being the best solution to help our staff maintain their competency and to make sure the process is safe. So I'm assuming your transplant volume hasn't really changed. So you've added these on in addition to your transplant volume. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned how much time and effort it takes to bring one of these studies up. Um, so there is a huge amount of time and human resources needed to onboard, support, refresh, and maintain a study. How can the cost of these services, most of which lack CPT codes, be recuperated by cell therapy labs? That's, maybe I can take that one. Uh, being at the NIH, we, you know, we're funded centrally. So we're not, you know, we, we deal with our administration to get a budget and, and mm -hmm. we are constantly fighting for increases. But, you know, one thought I had was that, um, you know, it'd be nice to have a, some kind of national coordinating center that was responsible for, setting standards and maybe even doing a lot of, you know, arranging the logistics. And then maybe if it's funded somehow by the, by the federal government, it could be kind of mandated companies would use this. Then maybe companies would pay a fee to this coordinating center. Then the coordinating center would somehow pass some of that money 
back to the uh, the center, uh, the cell therapy lab providing these services. But it's a terrific question, and it's it's one of the big hurdles that's going to move this forward because. From what I see, this activity is just going to keep increasing, and it's not just going to be in academic centers. It's going to be large mm-hmm. tertiary care hospitals that need to handle these products once they're licensed. Absolutely. So the pace, as you just mentioned, the pace of new cell therapy studies is increasing rapidly. What strategic decisions can cell processing laboratories make today to ensure they're well positioned over the next five to 10 years? What would you recommend? So I think as far as next steps for cell therapy labs, having these centers share their detailed experiences would be incredibly helpful for any ongoing and future initiatives to address the challenges that these centers are facing. For commercial cell therapies, the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy, or ASTCT, convened an 80-20 task force that did include clinicians, regulators, manufacturers, and professional societies to identify challenges and solutions with supporting these therapies. And interestingly, the task force noted that many logistical nuances between different commercial therapies stem from what was practiced in pivotal registration trials and became locked in once these therapies were approved mm-hmm. for commercialization. So um, we were able to share our experience and we think that any initiatives to standardize processes should start with early phase trials to prevent any downstream issues. And so having other centers share their experience, being a part of the dialogue um, to reach a better solution, I think would be a good next step. And, and then uh, I might add that, you know, for, for to get a lab ready, it would be important, I think it'd be important to have uh, identify a, a subject matter expert that has, you know, in the cell processing lab will be the point of contact for this. It should be somebody that's fairly senior that and, and has good communication skills so that maybe they can help with um, uh, working with the companies and, and they can be the point of contact when product comes in and, and uh, issuing it to the patient care units. So, and then I think, I think each uh, cell therapy lab has to have a physician that uh, starts to gain knowledge in this and, and helps uh, with a lot of the uh, negotiations and discussions that go on. Absolutely. And I think the point Anne made about what gets what happens in the early phases gets stuck and when it becomes commercial. And I think we need to focus on really unifying what's happening in those very early phase one, phase two trials that you all are doing a lot of, because it is, once it's FDA approved, you can't change it. And it becomes very frustrating. As someone who does both earlier trials and commercial products, it becomes quite, quite cumbersome. Unlike blood banking or pharmacy, there are limited options for cell therapy labs and transplant information systems. What IT resources can cell processing labs leverage today to help accommodate the influx of these new studies? Uh, For our current support of our offsite manufacturing, uh, we 
what we had been doing was trying to align it with the IT systems we have in place for our in-house protocols. So we have a lab information system that we use um, for in-house and we aligned it with the offsite manufacturing. Um, but what we ended up finding is that it ended up causing a lot of redundancies. Um, so information that we would have to log into our LIS system was already on the paperwork um, that was provided by the sponsors that we had to fill out. So almost counterintuitively, we ended up having to relook at the way that we um, were recording our information. And we've actually started to rely more on the sponsor provided uh, documentation. But some labs may actually find that they end up having to develop new systems in order to absorb um, these different protocols that come in. One thing that I'll note um, with regard to logistics is a lot of these protocols that come in, they may have portals or uh, clinical tracking programs uh, for the logistics that they end up requiring labs to uh, learn. And it can be uh, a lot to absorb, especially if each protocol or sponsor has its own uh, portal that it requires our staff to now end up using. So some groups end up having to absorb this. They just learn the portal systems. In our case, um, our strategy is that we actually have the NIH study teams be the ones to manage that so that the lab can just focus on the product handling side of things. Oh, so you have the more clinical side of the clinical folks enter the information into the portals. That's correct. And that's, oh, that's really, nice. yes, it's been incredibly helpful because what we were hearing from other centers is that it was driving them crazy to have to learn so many different portals um, for all these different protocols. And for us, you know, handling um, over a, 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 an 11-year period, uh, 15 of these protocols and actually more actively 13. And we have actually 15 upcoming protocols that we're actually expecting um, to be working on. That would just be too much for us to handle. 15 additional products? 15 additional that are oh, on our that we are preparing for, yes. And how many techs do you have in your lab? So we have a core team of technologists that work on our standard of care transplant products, and they mm -hmm. also work on these offsite products. And so it's nine staff members um, that we have that really um, work on these products, um, three of whom are in training, and we have a main supervisor that oversees this team. Um, that said, you know, we have this core team, um, but when it, what ended up happening with this increased demand, particularly in 2022, is we found that the volume of products that we were handling had increased so much, and we actually ended up relying on support from our staff who work primarily with our advanced cell therapies manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in 2022, as we mentioned in our publication, we found that we had to rely on their support for 61% of our final product infusions for these offsite manufacturing cell therapies. And that's beyond their scope of work. Um, but a part of how we try have really tried to mitigate any challenges with this is a really uh, robust and of course resource intensive preparation for all of these new protocols whereby um, our staff are trained um, from the get-go about these uh, new protocols, regardless of whether or not they may end up being the core team. 
but that can only be sustainable up to an extent. Right. You mentioned a questionnaire you send to the study sponsors for them to fill out. Uh, how has the response been to the questionnaire? Are most people willing to fill it out? And have you found it helpful in your planning purposes? Yeah, so we send this detailed logistics questionnaire out very early on in the process because even though we receive the product manuals, um, any leukophoresis collection manuals from the sponsors, we want help from the sponsors in identifying exactly what it is that we'll have to be doing as a part of the product handling process. And so far, um, sponsors and companies, these manufacturing facilities have been receptive um, to answering the questions. And sometimes there's a little bit of a back and forth for some clarification, but it's been immensely helpful for us to ask the right questions about um, times when we are expected to be shipping out the starting material, what we would expect as far as receiving a final product, product expiration times, all of those details that we would be uh, interested in and sometimes aren't covered in the product manuals. So when you systematically went back and looked at your over a decade long experience, what surprised you most about your data? For me, I think the biggest surprise was how infrequently we were handling these products. Um, so we spend so much time and resources preparing um, for these protocols. And after all of the resources that we put in, we may end up handling these products only a few times a year. And for some of these protocols, we saw that we were not handling them at all in a given year. So that was uh, uh, very sobering for me to see. Dave, what about you? What surprised you the most? Well, probably the variability between products. Uh, and summarize that nicely. And it it's, seems like every product is unique in the way they want to way they want us to either freeze it, store it, or, or infuse it. Yeah, I, I know in my cell therapy lab, we have a lot of frustration with that, just trying to keep it all straight. And it's amazing how different they are, how you have to thaw them differently, the times, like you mentioned, the expiration times and the how they have to be shipped. And it's, it's, it's a struggle at times when you're also balancing your standard of care work. Absolutely. So we mentioned standardization. Um, what are, do you think we have hopes of standardization in the future? I, you know, I don't see it yet, but, um, you know, I'm more, I'm fairly senior and I've been through a lot. So I, I, I think that if we keep trying to um, advocate for that and trying to work on it, I, I, you know, I think we will. I mean, you know, these biotech companies making these products, you know, they really need to protect their intellectual, pro you know, intellectual property on their cell therapy product. But I don't think that it really makes any difference how they ship it or, you know, how it's frozen and how it's shipped back. So if we can somehow figure out a way to to, you know, get a forum to talk to them and, and, and maybe as a field, we decide here's here's a best practice and try and ask them to use it. So I think there's hope, but it's going to take a lot of work and take some time. Yeah. 
I, I would agree with that, Dr. Stronsek. I think the key thing here is being a part of the conversation, sharing your experience and getting um, the dialogue started with all the various stakeholders that are involved. And I was uh, very pleased to see at the most recent ABB meeting that there were some great sessions about the challenges that centers do have to face. And so if we can continue that dialogue and uh, also get input from these offsite manufacturing um, facilities as well, which I think that uh, it seems to me, and I'm trying to be optimistic here, that um, there is ongoing um, efforts for various stakeholders to get together and have this conversation about how we can lessen the burden on centers and hopefully um, improve the uh, safety and sustainable uh, way that we handle these products. And that's our show. Thank you to Drs. Ann Din and David Stronsek for joining us for a really fascinating discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusions Monthly Podcast. See you next time.